Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Jesus, we come to you as people who have been raised out of darkness, out of slavery, out of our own indifference sometimes. We come to you recognizing that you, you didn't come to serve, you didn't come to be served, but you came to serve. And we pray that that fact would capture us this morning, that we would be consumed, God, by your humility, by your willingness to lay yourself down. And that we would take that into every aspect of our lives. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the blessing of worship that you've given us. We pray for your word to do what it does best, to cut us down to our very being this morning. We pray that we would be impacted, that we would be changed. And we ask all this in your holy and precious name, amen. Wow, good morning, thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, praise team. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, I love how they are able to take these arrangements of hymns and bless us with some of the old hymns um, in such incredible ways. And I love watching people under 20 lead us. To, yeah, to sing those great old hymns and watch them worship the Lord uh, in that. And it's just, it, it blows me away. I'm, I'm so thankful for that. Um, some of you that might have gotten here early may have seen a parade of students bringing in more of the Operation Christmas Child boxes surrounding the cross. Our, our hope and prayer that God's going to send those out to every corner of the world uh, to take the gospel to little young lives as well as their moms and dads. And uh, so we're praying to that end, be praying this week to that end. And let me tell you some good news. Um, I'm not gonna out you, okay? I'm not gonna out you. But I want you to know that we love procrastinators here at River Bluff. And because we love procrastinators, we have been able to secure, Kevin Kugler called and checked it out, we've been able to secure one more week, one more week for you to get your Operation Christmas Child boxes in. So it's not too late for all you procrastinators out there, okay? So, um, yeah, we got, we got the, the, the deadline just pushed back a little bit. So uh, take advantage of this week, okay? This is Procrastinator Week. Celebrate it. It's a beautiful thing. Okay. Um, also, I uh, want to share with you a little bit about what's going on uh, with these cards. As you came in, and if you didn't, on your way out, please, uh, notice some of these little cards that are sitting on a table, and I would encourage you to grab one, or grab three, because there's three different cards out there. And what these cards are, last Sunday, um, some parents stood with their kids right up here on this stage, and they dedicated themselves publicly to raise their kids to honor the Lord, to seek Him wholeheartedly, and they were going to do everything they could and knew how uh, to, to help their kids come to know Jesus. 
uh, to, to live according to the teachings of our Lord. And one of the things our church did was we said, we want to encourage you, we want to support you, we want to pray with you. And so to help you honor your commitment, there are these cards out there. I would encourage you to pick up at least one and devote yourself, maybe for the remainder, until such time at least that we do another parent-child dedication. Uh, until that time, be praying for that child and their parents. And they've actually put a prayer request down at the bottom of the card that you could pray for them. In case you're saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm a little prayer challenged. I don't know what to pray. It's in writing, we make it simple, okay? So uh, if you would do that. Um, next week, we're actually on Sunday going to share a video because they were up here masked. We want you to see all their beautiful faces. And so we'll be sharing a video next week of that. And speaking of next week, next week is our Thanksgiving service. Um, it is to prepare our hearts for, you know, the celebration maybe of Thanksgiving that following Thursday. But next week, we're just going to have a special time celebrating uh, the goodness of God in our lives. And part of what we're going to do is we're going to share in communion together, and we're going to give thanks. We're going to spend a lot of time worshiping uh, the Lord together. And so I want to encourage you uh, to be here, to, to plan to, to be a part of that, if you would. Now, we are continuing our journey in the book of Nehemiah. We're just kind of marching through um, the verses as they come up. And uh, this morning, we're going to continue that journey. We're going to be in the seventh chapter of Nehemiah, mostly towards the end of that chapter. But I need to remind you of something. I just want to pick back up that chapter 7 is really all about Nehemiah having looked back into the past, literally pulled out a uh, uh, if you want to call it a journal maybe, from years before uh, of God's people. And it was the writing about the exiles coming out of Babylon the first time with Zerubbabel as their leader. And so what, what we read and looked at in detail last week um, was kind of that. And I just want to remind you of that. So if you have your Bibles open to Nehemiah chapter 7, just look back at verses 5 and 6 real quickly. Nehemiah said, then God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy of those who came up at the first and I found written in it. This is part of what was written in it. And most all of chapter 7 is what's written in it. These were the people of the provinces who uh, came up out of captivity of those exiles uh, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judea or Judah, each to his own town. So this, was, this is a continuation, and all of the rest of chapter 7 is a, a, a listing of those things. And we covered, we ran through verse 65 last week. Today I want to pick up at verse 66 and finish the chapter out today. Verse 66 says, the whole assembly together, so this is all the people that they numbered uh, in, in that genealogy, were, were 42,360 beside their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. God was into detail. Do you notice that? Um, you start counting mules and donkeys, you're into detail, man. Okay, uh, verse 70. Now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 100 derricks of gold, 50 basins of, of priests, uh, excuse me, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work, 20,000 derricks of gold, 
2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 uh, derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, 67 priest garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Now, this is the word of the Lord. Now, this morning, what I want to do, because I don't want to go back and do lists. We did less last week, okay? That, that was, uh, last week was list week, we'll call it, okay? This week, I want to focus on a phrase that repeats itself in those seven verses. I, I want to focus on a phrase that's repeated back to back, ver, both in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 70, and verse 71. And this is the phrase. Some of the heads of father's houses gave. I just want to think about that this morning, that phrase. Some of the heads of father's houses gave. It says some gave, which means some did not. What this tells me is this. Some of God's people were givers. In Nehemiah's day, some of God's people were givers. Some gave generously. Some gave sacrificially. Uh, I believe those who did give gave out of grateful hearts. Remember, this is the group that had been held in captivity for, for decades. They, they, some of them may have even been born into captivity, and now they were heading back to their homeland. The, what for them was the promised land, a place that they had longed to, to go back to. Some of them had to do funerals back in Babylon. They had loved ones pass while, while they were there, loved ones who had hoped for that day when they and their families could go back to the promised land, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That had been their great hope. And now they were back. And so I believe those who gave, gave from grateful hearts. Some gave. Some of God's people were givers. But some of God's people were keepers. There were some, you know, if, if, if only some gave, it means others kept to themselves. Now, these keepers had the same experiences the givers had. They, they had been in the same place. They had longed to make it back to the promised land. You know, like, like the givers, they had seen how the hand of God had moved in miraculous ways for, for this to come about so that not only did they get to go back home, but God, through the, the giving of the kings... Bless them to go back and rebuild uh, the city of Jerusalem. They were delivered out of captivity. These keepers were having the same outward experience as the givers, but something was different on the, on the inside. And because of that, they became keepers instead of givers. Now, Many of you know or are familiar with the passage of Scripture that says God loves a cheerful giver. We'll talk about that more in detail in a minute. But here's the deal. It's obvious that some gave and others did not. And the way that language kind of is used there, it, it makes it sound like that, that some was not a vast majority. Or it would probably have said most gave. Most of the fathers, heads of the households gave. It didn't say that. It said some leaving us to believe that the majority were, were not givers, but were, were keepers. And this leads today, I, I hope and pray, to a, 
kind of a self-diagnostic question. Just a question to mess with your soul a little bit. Are you a giver or a keeper? Which, which one are you? Are you primarily a giver or are you primarily a keeper? When, when I look at and I think about all that Jesus has done for me and you, when we, when we look at this God who so loved the world that he gave his only beloved begotten son, does it stir you to give or to keep? When you think about all that God has done for, for us, what, what is stirred when we think about the mercy that God has shown us but no, by no longer counting our sins against us because Jesus paid it all on the cross? When I think about the great grace that God has given already by giving us eternal life that started now because Jesus indwells us. When I think about the great inheritance that God's word says is promised to me and awaits me in heaven, a place where he dwells, where we'll see him face to face, no more death or sorrow or sickness or COVID or mask or political differences over silly stuff like that. When I think about all of that, does it move me to give? Or is the motivation of my heart to keep, to give back to God? To accomplish his purposes on earth so that that good news of, of God of, in, in Christ could make its way out to the world. Starting right where we live, work, and play. And, and going out to the ends of the earth. Does it stir us to give or, 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 or to keep? You know, to keep, to keep for myself. For my own purposes. So that I can accomplish the will of I, me, mine. Does, does, it, does it cause me to keep or give which which one which one am i which one are you now again just some some history that i gave you in the first two weeks of our study of nehemiah that there were there's some parallel books in the bible that run with nehemiah ezra is one of those books and we're going to look at uh, a little bit from uh, about ezra next week next sunday uh, I told you about three prophets that God called out from these post-exilic uh, people, these people that had been in exile, and God called out, raised up three prophets, the, the, the last three uh, in the, the Old Testament. And God used, raised these, these three up for the purpose. Uh, and, and remember, these were all contemporaries uh, of, of Nehemiah. And so Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, all three were prophets caught God raised up for the purpose of calling God's people back to who he was and, and his plan for them and his desire to protect them and provide for them. And one of the things that had occurred, as we've seen in God's people at this time, is that they had become keepers instead of givers. And one of the prophets that God decided he was going to use to address this problem was the prophet Malachi. And in Malachi chapter 3, God specifically calls Malachi to proclaim a word from God to his people. But before we get to Malachi chapter 3, I want you to see what God says out of the gate is the reason for Malachi's work. The reason for the prophetic word here. And it's, it's this. If you go to Malachi chapter 1 
and look at verses 1 and 2. It says this, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now that word oracle in some places is translated the revelation of God. And what that's saying, what what, uh, Malachi wants his listeners to understand is, this is not something he thought up. This was not something, you know, that he was in prayer one day and this kind of thought came to mind. This was God speaking to Malachi, saying, Malachi, say this. Say this to my people. And then this is what the message was. God says, I have loved you. I, the Lord, God Almighty, I I loved you. And then God says, but I can tell you what's going on in your mind right now. I know what you're thinking. Because you have said... How have you loved us? I, I don't know if you read the snarkiness in that statement. But that's, that's kind of a snarky kind of word there. That, that people would say, how have you loved us, God? Look in our lives. We've been in exile. But God wants his people to know that this message from Malachi is all about his great love. It's a divine revelation coming straight to his people. And obviously, God knew that his people were confused about this great ultimate truth that God is love and that God loves them. That was lost on these these people at this time. And I think, especially in our day when we start talking about money and giving, sometimes the love of God gets lost on us too. We get confused. The the world distorts it. Our flesh distorts it. Satan himself distorts it. And so God sends this specific word. And it's couched in, in his great love for them. Because he wants them to see that there's a better way than keeping. And it's this path of giving. So in Malachi chapter 3... I want us to read verses 6 through 12 together. It says this, for I, the Lord, do not change. So God, what God is saying is, in, in this issue, God hasn't changed. Guess who has? His people have. He, he, he's not the one who's changed. He said, I have not changed. Therefore, you, O children of, of Jacob, are not consumed. You know, you're the one that's changed. I didn't. If I changed, what would happen is you'd be toast right now. That's what God is saying here. Verse 7, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you were robbing me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we robbed you? God responds in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Man, God just said some, all kinds of incredible things to his people in that moment. That first thing that kind of pops out probably was that statement of God said, you're robbing him. Oh my goodness, what, what, a, what a strong language. 
And, and God says because of that keeping that they were doing, that keeping that was going on, they had fallen back underneath the curse. Do you remember the, the, the great curse back in the opening of Genesis? God said that the, the, the whole earth was going to be cursed and labor was going to be hard and it was going to be hard to produce out of, out of this land. God said to the people of Israel here, you, you have decided to move back under that curse. You, apparently, that's the way you want to live. And so I've removed my protection and my provision for you, so you are, you, you are back underneath that curse. That's what happens when you move from giving to keeping. You come underneath that curse again. And so God says we can change that. And the way that we change that is rearranging your thoughts of who I am and what it looks like to become a giver instead of a keeper. And God said, I, I want to help put you on the path for that, for something called the tithe. Now, before I go further in this message that God delivered to those coming out of exile, I, I, I want us to understand again that this, this is... This message at that time in Malachi was going to these people who God had given the privilege to be a part of a great rebuilding, a great opportunity to be a part of rebuilding that God wanted to do among the, the, the people of God. And a part of that plan, God's plan was giving. And I need to address something that I, I fear has been loosed in the world and I think loosed in the Christian church in some ways, and it's this issue, it's on the issue of tithing. And I believe at, at best it's just some confused thinking. At worst, it may be even false teaching. And I want to begin with, by, by giving two warnings about this, and because these principles kind of deal with this issue of, of giving versus keeping. And the warning is this, it is so easy for us because of sin that has corrupted us in our thinking at times, it's so easy for us to make these great swaps. So I want to I push these warnings out and then kind of think through them together, and then we'll come back around to Malachi for just, uh, as, we, as we close. First warning is this. Beware of swapping self-righteousness for self-indulgence. Beware of that. Secondly, beware of serving greater limitation while seeking greater liberation. The first one is this, swapping self-righteousness for self-indulgence. See, people wanted to, in the New Testament church, are wanting to set aside the command to tithe because it sounds so legalistic. It sounds like, oh, we're going back to the law. We're, you know, we want to foster willingness and we want to foster freedom. And that's, you know, that's where the New Testament's all about. Friends, I, I want to just... Part of this warning here, this first warning is this. Beware of jumping out of the frying pan of legalism and into the fire of carnal slavery that leads to greed and, and to fear. Because sin is so deceptive that it doesn't take long for us to turn our freedom that we have in Christ into, into something that serves us, that allows us to indulge our you know, our own desires, our own wants, our own political leanings, our own comforts, our own whatevers. It's so easy. Sin is so deceptive that that can happen to, to those who are even seeking the Lord. And 
at many points along the way, people who kind of have started challenging this in the New Testament point to the Apostle Paul, and we're going we're gonna to track on him in, in just a minute, but what, what they say is the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, you know, we don't see him talking about the tithe. He talks about giving and generosity and all those kinds of things. And I believe all of that flowed out of Paul's great affection for God's people to be stirred up towards Jesus, that it, was, it had to do with this great affection that it would spring up in us. But the truth is, for all of us, at times, there's still an affection for the world. There's still an affection for our own flesh. There's still an attraction that the tempter puts out uh, for us. And so we want to lay aside sometimes the commands of God to pursue our freedom and it ends up being a train wreck for us in so many ways. Now, if it should happen that God stirs in you an awakening that is so deep and so powerful and so sacrificial that you have this new plane of thinking and you are set free from greed and, and the, the purposes of God and your desire to fund and finance and give to those is like the primary thing. That's, in other words, if your wallet gets born again, okay? If your financial portfolio gets born again, then you could kind of maybe start living that way. But so often that part of our lives almost doesn't seem to get born again, doesn't seem to fall under our salvation. So we need to be careful. Second thing that this warning is serving greater limitation while seeking greater liberation. That may sound strange at first, but here's the logic behind it. It doesn't make sense to me, but I've heard this kind of taught. It goes something like this. We live in the New Testament. We are a people on this side of Calvary. We've seen the power of God expressed in the resurrection. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit. We got the grace of sonship. It's on us. And they'll say, we're secure. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even tithing or not tithing. That's the thought behind it. They'll go on to, you know, they'll quote you Romans 8. Then they'll go on to think about you know, Philippians 4.19 that tells us that God's going to supply all of our needs in Christ Jesus. So what starts to happen there is because we try to walk away from the commands of God, you know, we, we somehow start to think that eh, we can be content to give less than our, New Testament brother, our Old Testament brothers and sisters. You know, it, it'd be okay. It, it's almost, you know, a little bit like this this mindset sets in. And we start believing things that keep us in bondage to keeping, that lead us into greed and self-indulgence and worldly worries. We get overwhelmed by that. And there are three myths that I think lead us down that pathway. Three myths that I think lead us down that pathway. The first myth is this. Jesus abolished the tithe. Friends, that's a lie. Jesus never abolished the tithe. You, you will not read anywhere in the New Testament Jesus saying something like this. You have heard it said that you should tithe. Give one-tenth of your income to the Lord. But I say to you, 5% will do. Oh, 2% will do. Oh, if all you feel like doing is tipping, yeah, do it. 
Jesus never said that. In fact, if you go into the Gospels, maybe somewhere like Luke chapter 11, and you see in verse 30, 42, Jesus is challenging the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's challenging them because they were living outside of the justice of God, outside of what loving others looks like. And Jesus said, woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe. You do this tithe thing good. You even tithe little herbs. He says, you're doing the tithe thing good, but you neglect justice and you neglect the love of God. And he says, these you ought to have done. You ought to do justice. You ought to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But you ought to do that without neglecting these other things, without neglecting the tithe. See, Jesus never used tithing, you know, as a way to say, well, I'll just, uh, I'll do my tithing thing so I don't have to do the injustice thing, you know, this justice thing. I don't have to do this loving thing. I can, I can just point to my tithe. Jesus says, you've missed it. You've missed it. Yes, those other things are important, but don't stop doing this. You know, one of the things that Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 5 it's not in your notes, but in, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said he hadn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He didn't come to abolish those things. Jesus didn't come to abolish the tithe. Another myth I've heard that kind of leads us down that, that path is that this idea of proportionate giving is, is not in the New Testament, or at least not the focus of the New Testament. This, you know, kind of giving... Some would say he's not really in sync with the teachings of Paul who teaches us to be sacrificial and generous. And I would say, I get that. I hear your heart on that. But there were times when Paul pointed out that proportionate giving was the starting point. When you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, Paul's given some very specific instructions about giving. He says on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. It's based on something. That sum of money is proportionate. It's, it's based on something. It, it, it is proportionate giving. And that's all tithing is. It's the proportionate giving that, that, that God said. See, Paul didn't write this off. He didn't say, no, we're not, we're not going to do this thing. You know, because we're, we're, because we're people of the cross, we can set aside this 10% thing. Friends, if, if Paul, if you wanted to get in an argument with Paul about this proportionate giving, here's what I think Paul would say to you. Because we're on this side of the cross, because we have the cross, because we have been given mercy, because we have shown grace, our proportion ought to be jacked up. Our proportion ought to be much greater than our Old Testament brothers and sisters because we have been afforded so much more of God's grace. I believe that would be the proportion for which Paul would, would argue. A third myth that I've heard and, and I've seen uh, talked about with this is that the ministry needs are smaller in the New Testament. Man, we don't have this elaborate temple to keep up with. There's not that sacrificial system that required, you know, more lambs, more birds, more, more, more every week, just all of this kind of stuff going on. You know, the, 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 there wasn't this entire, you know, people group that we were responsible for caring for like the Levites were. So ministry needs are, are, are smaller. But I want to take you back to the New Testament, to much of Paul's writings to show you this. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, we read these words. 
Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Paul writes to the apostle, I mean, to, to Timothy, his protege, and he, he, he talks about the paying uh, salaries, if you would, for uh, pastors and teachers. He says this in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Paul anticipated that. Paul expected that of the church. Not only that, but Paul expected that the poor would be cared for. If you go and look in the first part of, 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 of 1 Timothy 5, you'll see Paul lays out this clear description of caring for, for widows and, and the poor. When Paul writes to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 15, verse 25 through 26, we read this. Paul says, before I come, I must go to Jerusalem, and I must take a gift to the believers there. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. Not only for the poor, but Paul anticipated the church would cover the expenses of of the great missionary enterprise that God's people would, would give to that. And again, he makes that very plain when he writes to the church at Rome. And then again, when he writes to the church at Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense. Paul was asking a question. He was thinking about people going out on, on the mission with God, asking that question. You know, veterans, we didn't anticipate as soldiers that you would serve at your own expense. And Paul was saying we don't anticipate that God's, God's soldiers, God's missionaries would, would have to serve at their own expense. And so Paul is saying in, in teaching and preaching and caring and missions, all of those things cost and it should be funded by the people of God. And in fact, the, the cost in the New Testament for this is greater because the mission of taking the gospel to all people of every tribe and tongue and nation is a much greater mission than that which was given to in the Old Testament. It lays a much heavier burden on the people in the New Testament than those in the Old Testament. So those are some of the myths that are out there. And the Apostle Paul didn't didn't give in to that. But somebody say, well, why didn't he command this tithe thing? And I want to address this again real quickly. Here's why. Number one, because Paul always sought to elevate joy over constraint. He always wanted to elevate freedom and joy over constraint. He always wanted to elevate want to and love to more than ought to and have to. So Paul writes to the church at Corinth in chapter 9, We read verses 7 and 8. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. See, for Paul, it was about the grace of God. That our giving is a response to that grace. There's There's this principle here. He spells it out really incredibly precisely uh, when he writes to to Philemon. uh, Verses 8 and 9, Paul writes, Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, for love's sake, I appeal to you. See, Paul's appeal to Christ's followers to, to to move from keepers to givers was for the sake of love, 
First love for God. And then love for, love for, for others. Again, we see this in his letter to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul writes, I'm not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it to the eagerness of other churches. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Paul's saying the reason that I downplay the command part here is I want to elevate love. I want to elevate joy in the Lord. Second reason that I see when I study and look at the life of teachings of Paul, Paul always wanted to elevate liberality over limitation. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we read Paul writing specifically about the church at Macedonia. He says these words, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Again, according to their means points to a proportion of giving. And beyond their means is grace. This great grace they had experienced. And Paul says, I downplay the commands because I don't want to limit giving. I don't want to put a cap on it. I want you to be able to live liberally like the Macedonians did. Just another illustration from Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians 9. He said, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. See, for Paul, the issue was not, let me think how I can get God's people to a minimum. That's not what Paul was doing. Paul was always thinking about how in the world can we unleash maximum liberality in the kingdom of God as, as he intends. And so just only focusing on the command would limit that beautiful work of God. You know, the goal here for Paul was not the minimum. The goal was the maximum based on the marvelous grace of Jesus. And so that's what Paul's focus was. One last reason that I see in Paul's teaching is, is this, is to show how all earning, all of our earning, all of our labor is designed so that we might give, is designed for giving. When Paul writes to the church uh, at Ephesus in Ephesians 4, verse 28, we read this. Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather... Let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Now, most of us, we think Paul would say, quit stealing, get a job so you can pay your bills and you can have a little something. But that's not what Paul said. Paul said, quit stealing, get a job so that you can give, so that you can take care of others, not just yourself. That's, that's what Paul, and see, those are two totally different mindsets about money. Unfortunately, too many followers of Jesus think the big issue in the scriptures about money is not stealing it. Oh, that's the big sin. When you read this book, most of what's written to, to believers as it relates to money has to do with our heart towards giving. You know, are, are we... Are we becoming a channel of blessing? Are we becoming like a, a cul-de-sac, a dead-end street 
where everything just kind of lands on us, where, where we're keeping it, that it doesn't come to us and it flows out. According to Scripture, that's, that's a worse sin than stealing, that we just see ourselves that way as a keeper instead of a giver. And so I believe the Holy Spirit prompts Paul over and over again in his writings to help us try to step into the life and the whole kingdom of God, where working is not forgetting but for giving. And the foundation for that kind of life is tithing. It's, it's, the, it's just that, that starting point. Paul wanted more for his brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul saw something more glorious that he wanted us to be drawn to. So what does all that have to do with Nehemiah? And what was going on through the prophetic word that Malachi was giving to those people in that day. Well, I want us to go back and look at that right now. See, in that day, God's people seem to have developed a mindset that when it comes to this thing of finances, that God was like, he was this tyrannous judge that he just wanted to hold you down and, 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 and oppress you on this. But if, if you don't read Malachi's words and see God's mercy and grace, then I fear that you have been blinded by the enemy here. I fear that he, he is keeping you from seeing the beauty that God has planned for you. And so here's my last point for the day. And it's this. God calls us out of keeping and into giving not as a condemning judge, but as a wooing lover. Not as a condemning judge, but as a, a, a wooing lover. Friends, if when you hear that word tithe or tithing, and what happens is you feel, feel oppressed, you've missed, you've missed what God is purposing here, especially from the teaching here in Malachi, because this text is so much about mercy. Now remember, the book of Malachi is God saying, I love you to people who say, how have you loved us? This is, this is the, the prophetic word coming now from a God who wants his people to know that he loves them. And if you go on and if you were to read uh, Malachi all of chapter 1 and chapter 2, you'll find something else about those people. They had gotten to the place where they despised God's name. That's where they were. They had gotten to the place where for sacrifice, they were bringing lame, sick animals. And they were keeping the best for themselves. And God says to those non-tithing keepers, this is his message to them. This is what is in God's heart. Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 10, God says, I want to open the windows of heaven for you. You who are keeping from me. I want to open the windows of heaven for you. I want to pour down a blessing until there's no more need in you. I, I want to rebuke the devourer for you so that it, not, it won't destroy the fruit of your soil, the fruit of your labor, if you would. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear. You, you'll, you'll prosper, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. See, again, this was God, his message to keepers. These weren't givers. 
These were keepers in that day, and God was speaking to them. And I think God is speaking to us this morning. And that's why God says, when it comes to this thing, test me. Put me, put me to the test. Try me in this. I want to, God says, I want to open heaven up. I want to pour a blessing on you. I want to stop the destruction that's going on in your life right now. I want, to, I want to halt the destroyer. I want to cause your life, the vines of your life, to be fruitful. I want to do those kinds of things. God says, test me. Now, here's my question. Does that sound like a tyrannical judge? It sounds like a great lover. Wooing you, telling, here's what I want to do in your life. I want to pour, I want to fill your life with joy and hope. God says, are you, are you listening? Because that's what he's doing in Malachi 3. He's just wanting you to see his great mercy. His outstretched hands, you know, uh, pleading. Pleading with people who loved money at this time more than they trusted God. God says, for you people... I want to just, I want to open heaven. See, the reason that God pleads with us in our world today to tithe is because he knows it's a launch pad to that liberality and that freedom to into the kingdom life that God has planned for all of his people. A, a, a life that's free of the love of money. A life that's free of the fear of not having your needs met. See, Jesus, when he was talking about his dad in Matthew chapter 6, he said, our father knows what our needs are before we do, before they even get there. And God wants to open heaven. You remember when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray? How did he tell us to pray? Pray our father who's in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. God, would you bring some of what's up there down here? Malachi 3, God's saying, I want to. I want, I want to open heaven up. I want to dump it on your head. I want it to overflow all over you. But your keeping is not allowing that to happen. Your keeping cuts you off from this. And so you're, you're under the curse. Your keeping does that. I think the greatest verse, the most clear verse that points to the purpose that God has in our life for tithing is found in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23. And it simply says this, the purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your life. So here's the question. How do you reconcile being a keeper and saying Jesus is first in my life? Those are irreconcilable differences. Those, those, those can't be, those statements reject one another. You know, are you giving to the Lord? Or are you keeping for yourself? And God is, God is saying to all keepers today, come. Come to me. I want to open heaven up for you. I want to protect you from that which is devouring and destroying. I want to pull you back out from under the curse that you are experiencing. God says, test me, try me. You know, in that great letter to the church at Galatia, in Galatians chapter 5, there's a verse that we love. It's verse 1. And it just simply says this, it was for freedom 
that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject once again to the yoke of slavery. If you have, if you have found yourself in the yoke of slavery and the title is, I'm a keeper, God wants to set you free from that. God wants to loose heaven on you. He wants you to, to give you freedom that will remain. He wants you to step into his goodness because God is good and he wants so much more for us than we can ask or imagine. Let's pray. Father, we come right now in the name of Jesus giving thanks for your goodness. God, we thank you that your words call on our lives to move from keepers to givers, to move from maybe some who kept to become those who give. It's because of the abundance you have planned for us to receive, God, even now, an abundance of grace, an abundance of mercy that we could experience, Father, through the joy of giving. And so, Father, I pray right now for everyone who has heard today. Lord, I, I don't know who might be like those in Nehemiah 7 who are some of those givers. And I don't know who might be the others who are keepers. But I know what your word calls out to those who are keepers. That you have so much more. That you want to be so good. That you want to pour out heaven so that they could experience the God who gives in fullness because of your goodness. And so, Father, we come, we come now in these moments closing our time together. We want to celebrate your goodness. We want to think and focus on your goodness because we know that only that will set us free from the captivity of keeping that just wrecks our lives. So we come, Jesus. We come to worship you. We come to worship you, Father, thanking you that you are so good. And I pray for anyone here right now who's never experienced the goodness of God through his son, Jesus. I would love to have the opportunity to tell you about him in more detail. We come to worship you now, to worship your goodness, God to worship you who want to open heaven to your children. It's in your name we pray.